Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Armistead Maupin. Armistead is the author of the beloved Tales of the City series, which was first introduced to readers in the 1970s as a serial in the San Francisco Chronicle. The series follows a rich and diverse cast of characters in San Francisco, where Armistead currently lives. His long-awaited memoir, Logical Family, chronicles his childhood in North Carolina, his time spent serving in the military during the Vietnam War, and his eventual move to San Francisco. There, he found the courage to be true to himself, as well as his own logical family. All right, so joining us today, we have Armistead Maupin, author of Logical Family. And Armistead, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Michael. All right, um, so to start us off, can you tell us a little bit about the term logical family? I coined that term about 10 years ago um, for in, in a novel called Michael Tolliver Lives, uh, my perennial uh, landlady in Tales of the City, Mrs. Madrigal, uh, expresses the sentiment at one point that we have our biological families and then we have our logical families, by which she meant uh, the family that makes sense for us, the families that we accumulate over the years who accept us as we are and, um, uh, and love us as we are. Everybody has this. It's not just uh, gay people. Uh, I think gay people have learned to perfect the process uh, <laughs> because you get tired of uh, eventually get tired of uh, tolerating people who who live with their big, bigotry or even if they think it's their religious nature, uh, it it doesn't work. So uh, my husband, uh, Christopher Turner when I was struggling for a title for my memoir, I said, why don't you call it Logical Family? I kind of resisted it for a while, but then I, I, and now I can't imagine it being called anything else. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely very fitting. Um, so for you, in, um, so you found this Logical Family, um, and Michael Tolliver does the same throughout the series, um, but the biological family for both you and Michael is still um, a part of your life. How do those two families, the logical and the biological, coexist for you? Well, some of my, some of my biological family still exists for me. <laughs> uh, uh, one of the points that I've been making this time around is, especially at my age, I'm 73 years old, how long do I have to wait for my 30-year-old niece to realize what my life has been about, especially, especially when I've uh, written about it for 40 years? Uh, so they aren't all in, you know, exclusive or inclusive. I have my, I have members of my biological family who are part of my logical family. But if they don't, if they don't get along well, then the, then the biologicals are the first to go. Mm-hmm. Sounds a little brutal, I know, but it's uh, what what you arrive at after a certain point. You don't want to sit at one more holiday dinner and bite your tongue because you might get upset with relatives who think you're less than uh, they are mm-hmm. so they either the biological they either graduate to logical or they get the axe that's pretty much it. <laughs> 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 uh, 
most of them have, I must add, but some just can't do it, and I send them merrily on their way. They can, uh, they can believe what they want to believe, but uh, not around me, not anymore. Mm, absolutely. Um, so then in terms of your logical family, uh, one of the things I loved about reading the memoir uh, were all of these um, members of your logical family that you talk about, um, especially some of these very high-profile people, um, Harvey Milk, Ian McKellen, Christopher Isherwood, um, creating this sort of logical genealogy family tree. Um, and I just found that really fascinating in reading it. Well, that was one of the great delights for me about coming out. When you came out of the closet 40 years ago, you joined a very exclusive little club if you were a well-known person because uh, there just that, weren't that many people doing it. So you found each other. Um, I had known Ian McKellen, and he asked me one night if I thought he should come out of the closet. And I gave him an earful, and uh, I wasn't sure he was going to listen to my advice, but then he did, and um, it's made us friends for life, really. I ended up in introducing him to uh, Christopher Isherwood because I had known him uh, by then, and uh, Isherwood, in turn, I think it was—I think it was Chris Isherwood, or, or maybe I had did it—introduced uh, uh, Ian to David Hockney. These are all men who were honest early on and lived lives accordingly, and it was a natural group to be part of. And for me. As a writer, it was very exciting that Isherwood had uh, had been friends with uh, uh, E.M. Forster and uh, Somerset Maugham and a whole string of writers that went stretched all the way back, you know, into the 19th century. And I looked at that as a much more interesting genealogy than the one that I'd been raised with back in North Carolina, where it was a whole bunch of old, dull old planters and their wives, their faceless wives, their handmaiden <laughs> wives, mm -hmm. uh, who it, it, it wasn't something that made sense to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's in your blood, but that's about all. I mean, that this, you don't know those people. You don't know whether they felt about the world the way you do. When you're gay and you're open about it, that, that just sort of presumes a certain... Uh, attitude towards life uh, that's very it's wonderful to be a part of it's a joyful joyful thing mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad you brought up the concept of um, coming out as gay coming out of the closet because um, I wanted to t mention um, Rock Hudson how you talk about him in the group outing him um, yeah. when he was sick um, and that was a v sort of a very controversial thing where a lot of people thought that you know you shouldn't out someone they should come about it themselves. Um, what are your thoughts on that now, all these years later? Yeah, I'm, I, my thoughts haven't changed on that. Uh, I know I did the right thing. Rock was uh, on the verge of You made the point that he was sick. Yes, he was mm -hmm. sick, and the whole world knew he had AIDS. And to pretend that he wasn't gay made that worse than the illness itself. It said, this is the worst thing you can be. And I've grown up with that attitude about homosexuality, and I wasn't going to perpetuate it. I also knew I could kind of rescue him from the tabloids and everything else by stepping forward as a proud gay man who had known him and say he had nothing to be ashamed of, he was a good man, everybody loved him, Hollywood knew it, this is all part of a giant fraud that the machinery of Hollywood tries to keep going and I'm not going to support it anymore. Mm -hmm. That was my attitude towards it. It was hard to do because there were a lot of people who misunderstood it. 
Uh, and there's still people who think that homosexuality should remain the darkest secret of all and should not, should not be discussed unless the person themselves discusses it. I don't believe that. I don't accuse someone of being homosexual. Uh, and I certainly didn't in that instance. And it made a difference. I had watched many of my friends die in ignominy and pain and uh, because America would not personalize the nature of, of having AIDS and being gay. Uh, it was a terrible, terrible time. Many people have forgotten that, but they still hang on to the outing reference. By the way, that word had not been invented until uh, a reporter, a closeted reporter at Time Magazine uh, invented that term. Uh, it was simply a, a way to stop people from telling the truth. Mm -hmm. I, I feel very strongly about it because I think it comes to the core of of uh, what we mis what I have to stand for as a gay man, namely, uh, no more shame, no more shame. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that's the only way we can change the world. If we keep on making that the biggest secret, uh, then it'll stay that way. And Roth, by the way, was happy about it in the end. He uh, he sent his biographer when when she approached him about writing the book that he'd always wanted to write, where he told the truth. He told her that I was the first person that she should talk to. She told me that when she arrived at my house, and I felt good about it because I was worried that he might not have understood, but he did. He got it big time. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, it definitely opened up um, that conversation about AIDS on a national level in a way it really hadn't before. Yeah, and it needed to be done. And, and so, it made him into something of a hero uh, because he did do it. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, so then in, um, in your Tales of the City series, um, you were writing that as this epidemic came about, um, and that very much influenced a lot of the plot points that you write about. Could you talk a little bit about writing during that time, how that influenced your writing? Well, I had no choice but to write about AIDS because it was in my own life. I had lost a dear friend uh, to pneumocystis pneumonia in 1982. That was three years before Rock's diagnosis was announced. He was a young man, a 25-year-old man who went, moved to New York and then just died very quickly. And I was, it rocked me. And um, uh, I, I had to deal with it in some way. I've always used writing to deal with various issues in my own life. And I knew that I had a responsibility. I couldn't keep writing. This was, story was being serialized in the San Francisco Chronicle and was supposed to be, you know, reflect the times. There was no way I could write about the times uh, and avoid the subject of AIDS. It would dishonor the people that were dying all around me. Um, and that was also a time when all, all of us gay men thought we were going to die. We didn't know what the nature of the disease was. We figured we were going to get this thing and we were going to die. We had no idea that you, you know, we would have, people would eventually get to survive, however limited that survival might be. So I, I, I just took a deep breath and did it, and I decided to show how the death of one of the people who lives at 28 Barbary Lane uh, affected everybody else. I would show the repercussions of it and let everybody feel their grief. And then later on, uh, Michael Tolliver, the central gay character, uh, tests HIV positive um, because I wanted to let everybody feel less alone who had that experience. I I'm, I'm, was negative. I mean, I am negative. Uh, 
uh, but I had enough people around me that I could observe what their life was like. So I want to jump back to the beginning of the memoir. You open it up with this anecdote about how when you're young, your family would visit the cemetery and you had this fear of being locked in the cemetery overnight. Um, why start off the book with that in terms of the kind of tone you're trying to set? Oh, it just was the first story that came to mind. I remember that panic. And, uh, and it struck me as ironic because I had always been taught to worship my ancestors and had always believed that this would be the place I would be buried. And, um, and I didn't mind that. But something in the back of my head said, you don't belong here. It's really quite true. My brother recently acknowledged it in the phone, saying, "Do you want to? Do you want to get rid of your cemetery plot?" My father gave all of his children cemetery plots. That shows you how how deeply that sort of thing was was embedded in our family. That the biological uh, lineage. Yeah, the biological lineage must be buried on that particular little hilltop in <laughs> Raleigh because it was the nicest little hilltop in Raleigh where all the nice people were buried. And uh, so I thought it made an interesting metaphor. My, my childhood fear was probably just plain old irrational, you know, things that scare kids. So I remember seeing the sign that said cemetery locked after 6 p.m. And I thought we might get locked in there. I was also afraid of those pneumatic tube things that ran through department stores and delivered money. <laughs> I don't know why I was just terrified of them. <laughs> So then you talk in the memoir about growing up in North Carolina, um, eventually joining the military, um, and you first really come to terms with your sexuality when you're 25. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Um, well, it's in the book, and uh, <laughs> I guess I said it means I'm shy. It just sort of happened. I was out sitting by the waterfront in Charleston, South Carolina one night, and somebody tried to pick me up, and I said to him, I am not the, what you're looking for. And he apologized and left, and I sat there for a while and thought, that is so untrue. I'm exactly <laughs> what I'm looking for. <laughs> and I went back and found him uh, in the park and invited him home. And it was very simple and unspectacular and not very successful, but it, it lifted a taboo that I had been living with all my life. I had not been sexual with anyone, male or female, until I was 25 years old, and that's no way for anybody to be, um, well, maybe some people that are asexual, but <laughs> most people have those yearnings, and it's all tied in with how we love and how we experience tenderness and uh, intimacy, and so I just kind of got it out of the way, and even though, as I say, it was a bust as, a, as the experiences go, uh, I felt glorious the next morning when I was driving down to the naval base. I was a naval officer, by the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I knew that I had passed that point of no return and that I was suddenly uh, this just new person uh, because I, you know, maybe I could get it right, you know. So what if last night was no good? There must be other people. And... Uh, I think the sex life for all of us, gay or straight, is pretty much that way. You learn what you like and what you need, what you want, and how to, how to not settle for something less than satisfactory just because you think you should. All of those lessons were contained in that moment. Mm. And I feel like if we're talking about the memoir, we can't really have a conversation about it without at some point bringing up the letter to Mama, which has become 
really such an iconic um, piece in terms of coming out. And that you wrote that in um, the second Tales of the City in the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and it was just really, it was really your way of um, coming out to your parents, essentially. It was. They were subscribing to the Chronicle. They knew I was gay, but like most waspy Southern families, every subject was avoided if it possibly could be. Mm-hmm. And so I basically had to force the point. And, um, and I, uh, I had this character who was very conveniently the son of Florida orange growers. Michael Tolliver's parents are orange growers. And Anita Bryant, the person who led the anti-gay movement in those days, uh, advertised Florida orange juice. So it, there was a wonderfully ironic way to bring it into this serial by having Michael's mother write him and say they've joined Anita Bryant's campaign. And that forces Michael, who is every bit as uh, withholding as I was, to express himself and to say, I don't need saving from any anybody uh, except the cruel and ignorant piety of people like Anita Bryant. I'm happy the way I am. In fact, it's, you know, the, the light and the joy of my life, that's what he says in the letter. That letter, by the way, has... Uh, it's had an amazing life of its own, just aside from the people who read it. It's been set to music a number of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a beautiful choral piece uh, that's performed around the world. Uh, my friend Ian McKellen has read it publicly at, a, at, a, at an evening celebrating famous letters. Um, it was part of a musical in San Francisco based on Tales of the City. Um, and I still can, well, this is an embarrassing thing to admit. <laughs> I can make myself cry with that letter when I read it out loud because it it comes from a place inside me that is a, was about as real as I could get at the time. I wrote it in 45 minutes in the newspaper office uh, because I'd been wanting to say it for 15 years. And I wish that my parents had responded by saying, that was beautiful and brave and we love you, but they couldn't bring, they were still fighting it. They were still fighting what their friends knew. Uh, I came out roughly at that time in Newsweek magazine uh, when when the Anita Bryant campaign was going on and they, I alerted them, so I didn't want them to be embarrassed, but I said the Newsweek is going to identify me as a homosexual columnist, I think was the term they used. They left town. They they went up to the mountains and rode horses until the until Newsweek was off the stand. <laughs> That's really very old fashioned sounding now. I know because now it would be a tweet and it would fly around the world and there would be no getting away. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I recommend it to everybody. Yeah, if you're I love- carrying that weight on you at all, uh, it's a terrible, terrible weight, and you really don't know. My friend Jonathan Groff, a young man who's, you know, the big Broadway star, mm-hmm. um, uh, said that, you know, he, he realized once the weight was gone, how heavy it had been and how boring it was to walk around and be yourself and not worry about what people knew or thought. And it's as true today as it was 40 years ago when I did it. And that's why I still talk about it, because I want young people to realize uh, that they can give themselves this freedom. All you have to do is, is, is say, I'm as good as anybody else and live by it. 
and you will attract the best people. You'll you will hang on to your real friend and uh, lose your fake friends. And find the logical oh, family. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's like a lot. You'll get your logical family as soon as you start telling the truth. That's great. Um, yeah, no, that letter is so so timeless and profound. Um, so Armistead, we have one more question for you, um, and this is a question that we ask all of our podcast guests. Um, since this podcast is primarily for teachers, educators, their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, that's an easy one. That was Mrs. Peacock, my senior English teacher. <laughs> I write about her. I write about her in Logical Family because she was so inspiring. Inspiring means that she liked me better than anybody else. <laughs> she favored me. She told everybody I was going to be a, a writer someday. And she'd done this twice before to great success, um, once with Reynolds Price, the novelist, and Ann Tyler, who was also in Mrs. Peacock's class. She was a wonderful face spirit. She would run around the room. She was this little tiny... She's, She's, she uh, she was more like a hummingbird than a peacock. <laughs> she kind of flit around the room and then land on a chair and stand and make a speech from something. <laughs> and uh, and a lot of kids giggled at her behind her back, but I didn't. I was getting the I was getting the good grades, and she was writing orchids to you on my writing, and she'd throw a little orchid on it. She and you know she showed up. At my first book signing in Raleigh, when she was almost, she must have been into her 80s by then, but she was standing there in line with some guys in black leather who offered to let her come to the head of the line. And she said, no, 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 I'll wait. Mm -hmm. uh, wonderful, wonderful woman who is remembered by many of her students, not just the ones that became famous. That's great. That's awesome. Um, well, Arma said, this has been terrific. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. I've enjoyed it myself. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.